2 Samuel chapter 20 this evening. We're getting close to the end of uh, 2 Samuel, and we'll begin the first book of Kings, where we see the David's uh, reign ending and his son Solomon taking over in his, in his place. It's been very interesting as we have been going through the last several chapters because we've seen David, you know, when I think of what David went through, it's really remarkable. You know, the, the Bible says that he reigned for 40 years, okay, for 40 years. And yet, in a condensed form, I mean, there's a lot that, you know, I mean, when you think about it, First and Second Samuel, the, the majority of it is about David. And yet, there are many years in between these events and these chapters that we've read. Think about that, 40 years. And so we've seen David's, the best of times, we've seen him at his worst of times. And, and one of the things that I've, uh, I love about David is that he's not one of those fellows that when he gets into trouble, he just continues going into a downward spiral and then you hear about his dismal end. Um, Saul was really that character who started off, he had all the tools, God had given him everything, but he didn't finish well at all. But David learned from his mistakes, and David wasn't a perfect man. And I want to encourage you tonight again, because as, you, as we read through Samuel, and as we, we're coming close to the end of 2 Samuel, as we have read and as we will continue to read, bear that in mind, because the Bible says that God fashions our hearts alike, meaning that when it really comes down to it, you and I all have the same desires. I mean, we all want to be loved. We all want to be accepted. We all want to excel. We all get hungry. We all get lonely. We all get frustrated. We all have moments of, you know, where we feel like we're on top of the world and other moments where we feel like we're in the valley of despair, the pit of despair. <laughs> and so all these emotions, and the Bible makes no excuse about these things when, when, it, when we look at the, the people who lived back at this time, and David is one of them. You know, I, the th one of the things I love about him is that you just see him going through the heights and the depths, and all the while he's learning. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I've grown with David as we've gone through this, these two books, First and Second Samuel. Learned so much from David's life, and one of the things that I'm learning is, is never to give up. Never give up. And when you make a mistake, when you sin... Don't allow, it to, don't allow for sin to beget sin to beget sin because that ultimately leads us to death, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, right? And so we know that. But David was, when he made a mistake, he, he turned from it and he made a lot of mistakes. But guess what? The Bible calls him the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote many of the psalms. And he also... He learned, and he grew, and he changed. And I would encourage you to do the same. And we ought to find ourselves in very good company as we look at David, because I don't know about any of you, but my life has been a, a series of, of ups and downs, and that is true for most of us. Most of us have ups and downs. I don't know of any person who's alive on the planet or whoever will live that will encounter anything but that. And, and God has a funny way, an interesting way, of making sure that we go through those peaks and valleys. It's just part and parcel of being a human being, right? 
And so as we get into chapter 20, David is coming back into Jerusalem. He's already been, you know, his, his sin with Bathsheba has already taken place. We see his, uh, his children uh, rising up against him. We see all these problems that he's having. And then we see David um, finally having to leave Jerusalem because one of his sons, Absalom, is trying to depose him as king and set himself on the throne. And by the way, there's going to be another son yet future to our narrative tonight that's going to do the same thing. This is not over yet for David. And so he leaves Jerusalem. He flees in exile because his son and an army is coming that he's amassed. And, and David goes across the Jordan River on the east side to a city called Mahanaim, a fortress, and there he amasses his army. And ultimately, in the end of this army, this battle that would ensue, we find out that Absalom's son, who was seeking to be king himself, he ends up dying in battle, getting caught in the thicket of a tree. And Joab, David's nephew, ends up killing David's son. And David said for nobody to touch the king's son, but Joab was a bloodthirsty man. We're going to see tonight that things haven't changed for Joab. He's just one of these guys. He's a very loyal man, but he's not a very obedient man. And I think loyalty and obedience are two great ingredients for any person, especially those who are working for somebody. If you're an employee, it's really wonderful to be loyal and to be obedient. Because one without the other is just not the same. But when you've got an individual who's loyal and obedient, there's nothing greater that a, an employer could have. But Joab was such an individual. He was loyal, but he was not obedient. He was a bloodthirsty man. And so let's look at chapter 20. Um, what has happened, um, we know. When we were looking at chapter 19 last week, David was coming into Jerusalem, and David um, comes in, he encounters Shimei, the very man who disdained him, who scorned him, and threw rocks and sand at him and his family as they left in exile, and now they're coming back, and they are being, uh, and now he meets Shimei again, this scorner, and now he's changed his tune, how convenient for uh, him to change his tune, but he does. And he also meets Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, Jonathan who had died along with his father in battle. And now Mephibosheth is the only one of Jonathan's uh, sons that are still alive. And the only one, I believe. And so David comes into Jerusalem, and there was a, a, a quarrel amongst the ten tribes. When you, when you think of, of Israel from now on going forward, you need to think of it like this. Most of us, when we think of Israel, we think of the whole entire nation. But Israel, from here going forward, you're going to find that there's going to be, there, there's already been a split. There's been a fracture in the relationship of the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, down in the south. The other ten tribes in the northern part, there is already a fracture, and we're going to see that tonight as we get into chapter 20. And one of the interesting things is, is that initially when David was coming back into Jerusalem after his exile, it was really Israel, those northern ten tribes that were really 
um, wondering, you know, now that Absalom is dead, and by the way, we were on his side, so oops for us, but now they're thinking, you know, we should bring back the king and let's kind of do it quickly and, and, and beg his forgiveness, right? And so the northern ten tribes, they speak of this. We should probably bring back the king, but what happened was is Judah... They are there, and they're right there on the spot, and and they're bringing the king and his whole family, his whole entourage across the Jordan River in a ferry boat, and finally they get from there, and they go up to Gilgal, and when they get to Gilgal, the men of Israel come around, and they're really mad now because it was really kind of their idea, but they weren't there to actually go through with it. They, they, They took too long, and Judah had already brought him into into the, into the area and cross the Jordan. And the men of Israel were upset about that. And what I find so interesting about this is here we're going to see just the beginning of the fracture. The fracture has already happened long ago. But it's just, you know, have you ever had a relationship where there's been this, this, this problem? There's been a friction. There's been a problem. And then um, as time goes on, there's another problem. And it just never seems to heal it just never seems to heal. You know, it's like when you break a piece of pottery and you keep gluing that piece and then you knock it over and, the, and you glue it back together again, it just it never wants to really adhere like it used to. And finally, there's going to come a point in the future from this time where they're just going to make the declaration, say, you know what? We're going to stay up here and have our own king. You guys can stay down there and have your own king. And the nation, the kingdom divides with the northern ten tribes called Israel or Ephraim, and then the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And so from now on, when we say Israel, think of the northern ten tribes, and usually when they say Judah, it's meaning Judah and Benjamin together, okay? So just know that as you go forward. That's important to know. So let's look now at chapter 20, and we're just going to read, let's see. um, Let's just... um, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter for the sake of time tonight, because we may get through chapter 21 as well. But let's look at chapter 20. Notice what it says. And it says, And there happened to be there a rebel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no share in David. Now, remember, he's a Benjamite. Um, He says, we have no share in David, nor do we have any inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. And you may notice in the margin of your Bible, it says Sheba, and it uh, it says a man of Belial. Um, Some of your Bibles will have that footnote. And and basically, a man of Belial, it's, it's a Greek word, and it basically means a worthless person. Somebody who is um, a wicked person, somebody who is worthless. And there's a lot of men of Belial <laughs> in, in our world today, right? And so this man wasn't a good man at all. He wasn't a good man. He was the, he was the son of Benjamin, of, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was from that family of, of, of Benjamin. It tells us that in 1 Chronicles 7, verse 6. But notice it says, we have no share, this is what his exclamation, we have no share in David, nor do we have an inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. This phrase literally is a declaration of war, is really what this is. And so already the rift between the north and the south is is becoming more obvious as we go along. In fact, in 1 Kings, off to the margin of your Bible, you might want to write this scripture reference, uh, 1 Kings 
chapter 12, verse 16. And the reason you want to write that in your Bible is because there's coming a time, as I was telling you before, that the kingdom's ultimately going to split. There's going to be a fracture and it would never heal. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, the same thing happened when, uh, when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, when he was really rough with the people, and um, that he said that now all, when all Israel saw that the king, meaning Rehoboam, did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. It sounds, it's a very familiar phrase. And we're, we're hearing it here in chapter 20. But the idea is, we're done with you. We're going to fight. We're gonna, we're gonna, there's going to be tension. We're going to have a battle. Or we're just going to separate. It's a, it's a declaration of independence, in a sense, for them. And so this is starting to happen. And notice in verse 2, So every man of Israel deserted David. Notice the men of Israel, the northern ten tribes, they desert David, and they follow Sheba, this rogue individual, this man of Belial, this worthless man. They follow Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah, from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem, they remain loyal to their king. And obviously David is from Judah, and so his people are loyal to him. And thank God for that. And you know, as, as you think about this, think of how difficult this must be for David. You know, you were king, now your, your, your son tries to depose you, you go into exile. I mean, hasn't David seen enough trouble already? I mean, as we've looked at his life, he's been through a lot of trouble. He was hunted by Saul for many years, at least seven years. He's hunted by Saul. He finally gets into the, you know, in, into the kingship, into, the, into his reign, and he, he makes some very poor choices. And as a result of that, it yields a bumper crop of consequences. And if that wasn't bad enough for David, now he's got to flee and he's out there, away from his city, away from Jerusalem. And now he comes back and the, the country deserts him except for his one tribe, which he had in the beginning when he was king over Hebron for seven years. So he's back to square one again, it seems. And so it's amazing how fickle people can be. You know, when you look at verse 2 there, the, the men of Judah from the Jordan as, uh, as far as Jerusalem, they remain loyal to the king, but the other ones, they, they desert David. And, uh, and yet they were the first ones that wanted the king back. But the, the men of Judah were the first ones to bring him back. And the other men, they get all bent out of shape about it. and they, So much so that this man, this man of Belial, he turns against David and every uh, one from Israel flees from David. So now David's back at square one. It says in verse 3 now, Now David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and he put them in seclusion and supported them, but he did not go into them. Remember, David had wives, and he also had concubines. And, um, and these women, obviously, he would have physical relations with them, even though God had told him that it was not a good thing for him to do. And yet he did it. And so there are consequences for those things when we go against the will of God. And so he did not go into them, but he shut them up until the day of their death, living in widowhood. 
And if you remember, it was, um, you can put a reference off to verse 3 here, because back in chapter 16, uh, verse 20, remember it was Ahithophel, David's counselor, and also Bathsheba's grandfather. He puts into the heart of Absalom, as, as Absalom comes in to depose his father, he says, Absalom, if you really want to do this, if you really want to do this, then the way to seal the deal, to make sure that everybody knows that you're the king now, you've got to go up on top of that house of, of David's, and you've got to sleep basically with his harem, with those ten ladies. And that's exactly uh, what Absalom did. And so when David returns into Jerusalem, he doesn't just take them back into his harem again. They've been defiled by his son, unlawfully, wickedly. And so what does David do? He provides for them. I mean, they, they had a great life. I mean, he was the king and he provided well for them, but he, he didn't go in unto them and they remained widows until the day of their death. But those ladies were taken care of. And so that's what happened here. So verse 4, And the king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. Amasa, remember, was another nephew of David as well as Joab and Abishai. Remember, Joab was the, and Abishai, they were the sons of David's sister, Zeruiah. Zeruiah. Because one of the things to remember or, or to think about is that David... Uh, David's father was Jesse, and we don't know his mother's name, or at least I don't, I don't remember what, I don't know if it mentions her name, but she was actually previously married to another man, and she and, and the husband that she had had two girls, and they were Zeruiah and Abigail. And so whatever happened, that man may have died. We don't really know much about the relationship. But then she remarries Jesse, and now these two girls come into the family, Zeruiah and Abigail, and through the, the woman and Jesse, they have eight sons, one of which is David. And so David's got these two half-sisters, Zeruiah and Abigail. Well, it's Zeruiah, she actually got married and had sons, and um, Abishai and Joab were two of those. And Amasa was the son of Abigail. So David's other half-sister has another son named Amasa. And so you see a lot of nepotism in the Old Testament like this, especially in the kings. And so, and the king said to Amasa now, because he's kind of had it. David has kind of had it with Joab. Because Joab is loyal, but he's not obedient. And he's like a loose cannon. You know, David will say to do one thing, and Joab will do another. And there, there came a point, and we're seeing it right here in ink, that David is just kind of like, you know, I've had it with this guy. He's my, he's my nephew. I love him, but I can't trust him. He's, he doesn't do what I tell him to do. He doesn't obey. He's a loyal to a fault. He's a loyal man. He'll do anything to keep David on the throne, but he's not listening to him. And that's a big problem. And so the king said to Amasa, assemble the men of Judah for me within three days. Notice, and present them here for me. He didn't ask Joab. He asked Amasa, because David's already made up his mind, I want Amasa to be my commander of my army. And so Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed for him. And David said to Abishai, now remember, Abishai is Joab's brother. 
So when you put these, when you think about these relationships, I, I would encourage you to think in that way when you read the Bible, because the the dynamics of this thing gets really thick. And as soon as you start realizing the the relationship and the connection in all of this, you're gonna and, and start really thinking about it as you read it. It'll really open up new facets of these things to you. It won't just be a history. It'll be like it's a real life story. It's a real life event. Events that are happening. And so he, he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed for him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, now Sheba the son of Bichri, will also do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape us. And so Joab's men with the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the mighty men, we'll talk about them later, they went after him, and they went out out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So now Joab gets wind of this, and, and Joab goes out, and they are going to hunt down this Sheba, this rogue man of Belial, this worthless man who's creating more problems. And David was wise enough at this time to realize that as soon as you have somebody who's against you like that, it, it's just not going to stop. It's just not going to stop. Have you ever noticed that? More often than not, whenever you have an enemy, if you haven't made peace with that enemy, if you haven't been able to sit with them and talk with them face to face, and there's real repentance, chances are the hatred, the bitterness, the intrigue, the conspiracy is just going to continue and continue. And so David's already feeling this in his heart, that this guy is up to no good. And so he's already had enough of intrigue and conspiracy. And so he's like, I got, we got we to gotta get rid of this guy. We got to catch him. And so, right or wrong, that's what David is doing. He sent his men. And these Cherethites and these Pelethites, these are basically hired mercenaries. And they're very loyal men. They, they, most of them came from the Philistines when David was in the Philistine, when he was in cahoots with them before he became king. Um, many of these men came with David when he became king. And they were even more loyal to David than his own countrymen. In fact, these men, think of them like a secret service. You know, our president has the army and the navy and all these different armed branches, but then he has an inner circle of security, the, the um, secret service. Think of these Pelethites and Cherethites as those kind of guys. These are David's inner circle of men around him. And so that's what they are. And so Joab's men... With the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, they went out after Sheba, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. In verse 8, when they were at the large stone, which is in Gabeon, Amasa came before them. So he's been delayed. He, I don't really know exactly what's happening here, but Joab knows that David has basically placed his other nephew, Amasa, placed him in charge. And do you, can you imagine what jealousy and rage there is on Joab's part right now. David wanted that man to go. But he's not the one who, he didn't come back in time. And so now Abishai, Joab's brother, they meet up together. And so finally they're going after Sheba in the northern part of Israel, but they meet in route to that, they meet this guy Amasa. And they are all family. These are family members. Think of like, you know, these... Uh, uh, soap operas that you watch on television. I mean, the, the intrigue and the families and the he said this and she said this and they're doing this behind their back. This is right, it's right here. I mean, this could be, you could call it David's, you know, as, as David 
as David turns or, or whatever, you know, you could call it the, the David's light or whatever instead of the, the guiding light. You know, uh, it really is. It's that thick with intrigue and conspiracy. And so, <laughs> when they were at the large stone, which is a Gabeon, Amasa came before them, and now Joab was dressed in battle armor, and on it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath. And this is probably a dagger, not really a, a sword in the sense of you know, a long sword. It was fastened in its sheath at its hips, and as he was going forward, it fell out of its sheath. And then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand, and he kissed him, which is a very Middle Eastern, uh, an Eastern kind of thing to do. But David, or excuse me, Joab was a lot like Judas here. You know, reaching up to kiss the man and, and, and some kind of greeting, but really he's got this sword in his left hand that Amasa did not see. And certainly they were rivals because David chose Amasa because David was tired of Joab and his bloodthirsty ways. And so you can, you can see the competition there, and Joab wasn't going to have any of it. He would be the man. And we're going to see as we go on that David never corrects him. David just acts like it doesn't happen. He doesn't mention anything or very little at all. And so... Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and so he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground. Anybody have dinner before he came? This is kind of nice to listen to, right? His entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. He hit him so hard with this little dagger that he had in his hand, and thus he died. And then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And so he just slays this man in cold blood just because he's jealous of him. Again, a relative of his. And again, the prophecy is being fulfilled. What prophecy am I talking about? Off to the margin of your Bible, right there in verse 10, write this scripture reference, because this prophecy that God gave to Nathan, that Nathan gave to David, is coming to fruition again. Again, it's coming to it's in Second Samuel chapter twelve. You know, one of the things you can do in your Bibles instead of writing to Samuel and writing all that out, if you're in a book and you know it's in the book that you're in, just put in the 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 the, the, the chapter, the colon, and then the verse number. Um, some maybe you do that already, but that'll save some ink and save some time. Just put in twelve, uh, verse ten hyphen twelve. But here it is. It says, "Here's the prophecy." Because of all that David had done, God spoke to Nathan to tell David, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me, God tells David, and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Hasn't that already happened? Absalom taking David's harem? And certainly now, you know, Absalom, remember, killed Amnon, David's firstborn son. And then Joab kills Absalom. And now Joab kills Amasa, another one of David's relatives. This guy's got so much blood on his hands, he could be a, a Red Cross agent. <laughs> but the prophecy is, is continuing. God told him, because you did this, David, here are the consequences. And the consequences are happening. 
and they just happened. And so now Amasa is killed. So verse 11, meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa, and he's lying there on the ground with all of his intestines all over the place. Sorry to be so graphic, but that's what it says. Um, so uh, stood near Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. But Amasa, verse 12, wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the men saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to a field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted. And you know, it, things really haven't changed, have they? You come upon a, a car accident. I'm surprised there's not more car accidents because you see people driving by and they're like, and they're, they're looking, you know, and there's a car and it's all mangled up and somebody's crawling out of it, you know, and the, the crews are there with the jaws of life and they're hosing the thing down from it's on fire, you know, and everyone's driving by and they're not looking at the road. They're looking at this because they're, they're just, you know, it's something you don't see every day. Same thing here. They see this man and they've never seen anything like this before. Not like that. Oh, my goodness. And they're just intrigued, and they're kind of fixated. So they drag him off into the field, put a garment over him. So verse 13, when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri, this man of Belial, this insurrectionist. And he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and Beth Maacah and all the Barites. So they were gathered together and also went after Sheba. This place called Abel Beth Maacah is actually, if you were to look at a map of Israel, it is to the west, about four miles of Dan and north of the Sea of Galilee, some number of miles. So it's, it's up there in the northern part, but it's on the west side of, of Dan where uh, Jeroboam had created the altar where he erected one of those golden calves. So it's west of that, about four miles. And so they came and they besieged this town in the northern part of Israel, and they cast up a siege mount against the city. And it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab, they battered the wall to throw it down. Because the reason they're going to throw it down is because Sheba was inside this city. He had taken refuge into that city. And then a wise woman cried out from the city, Hear, hear, please say to Joab, come nearby that I may speak to you. And thank God, this woman, why wasn't it a man? I don't know, but it took a woman. She's thinking to herself, you know, what's the problem here? You know, you're laying a siege. We, we are your people. We know who you are. Why are you coming against us? And so she's just reasoning with Joab, which is a really good thing to do with a bloodthirsty man. Try to reason with him first. And thank God she gets through to him. So when he had come near to her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. So she spoke, saying, They used to talk in former times, saying, There shall surely seek guidance. They shall surely seek guidance at Abel. And so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel, and you seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it, for, far be it for me that I should swallow up or, or, up or, destroy, or destroy. 
That is not so. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from this city. And so the woman said to Joab, watch, his head will be thrown down to you over the wall. Wow, what a, what a great mom. You know? <laughs> but it was a smart thing to do because Joab and this army, they're going to tear the town apart. And thank God, someone with common sense, a woman, has to tell him, oh, what's the problem here? Well, there's a guy in there. Well, why didn't you just say so? <laughs> why didn't you just say so? Maybe we could work something out. She says, yeah, we'll work something out. Stay here because shortly his head's going to come flying over the wall. And sure enough, the woman, in her wisdom, went to all the people in that city. It was a walled city, obviously as they mostly were for, to keep out enemies. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab, and they shouted, Merry Christmas. And then he blew a trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. And so Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. So they give, David what, or give Joab what he wants, and they leave. Pretty simple. It's kind of an unfortunate thing, you know, that... You know, they could have just said, think of, the, think of the alternative. You know, it's always good to preserve life, and yet Joab just didn't understand that principle. David understood that principle. He had many times, many opportunities to kill Saul, his, his sworn enemy. Really, he, David wasn't an enemy to Saul. Saul really saw David as an enemy, but David's heart was always good towards Saul. But David had opportunities to kill him. David had opportunities to kill many people, even when they wronged him, but he was of a different ilk than Joab. Joab didn't understand the option of life. I mean, think of what, what could have happened. Joab could have said, you know what? Just bind the guy and bring him out to us, and we'll give him a fair trial. Well, you know, we may, he may be punished. He may spend his life in jail. Or maybe he would be executed. But there's no talk of that at all because Joab only knows one thing, and it's the sword. It's the sword. It's the sword. The Bible says that if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And we're going to see that Joab actually does. God comes through on his promise. So Joab, verse 23, was now king over, over the army of Israel. David had anointed Amasa to be his nephew, to be in Joab's place, but Joab kills him. Do you notice there's no mention here that David had some kind of conversation with Joab and said, Joab, why did you kill our brother? Why did you kill our nephew? I mean, wouldn't, there be, wouldn't you think there should be some ramifications from that? Maybe, you know, saying, you know what? Abishai is going to be the head of the commanding of the army from now on, not you, because of what you've done. You killed my brother, or you killed my son, Absalom, and now you kill our nephew, Amasa, and yet crickets from David. And this is one of David's problems. This is one of the things that made David, that weakened him, is that he was strong in some areas, and he was weaker in others. He, and, and perhaps because of his own sin and because of how God dealt with him, maybe David felt he was so morally um, weakened that he couldn't, say, he couldn't do anything at that point as far as correction. It could be that. We don't know. David certainly had his guilt. 
because he, didn't, he wasn't engaged with his sons. And had he been engaged with Amnon and with, with, uh, with Absalom, had he been in, truly engaged and, and caused things to go right in the beginning when Absalom, or when, uh, excuse me, Amnon raped Tamar, Absalom's sister, had they talked it out as a family, had they went through the process, things could have been different. But they're not. But they're not. So now Joab is restored to his post and no mention of what he had done. David just kind of stuffs it in his heart. He knows exactly the kind of man Joab is, but he's probably got nobody as good as Joab. Maybe that's the reason. We really don't know. But he puts him back. And notice, Benaniah, and Joab was over the army of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. So this guy, Benaniah, was, uh, he actually, um, we're going to find out he's going to take Joab's place as we look in, when we get into 1 Kings, when Solomon becomes king um, after Joab is killed. See, I'm horrible like this because I give away the story before we get there. See, what, what, if I was really smart, I would uh, just kind of leave you hanging each, you know, right at the end of the episode. What's going to happen? Oh, you've got to come back. You know, but you guys are smart enough to read ahead, so. And you should, and that's good. Uh, <laughs> so, but this Ben and I, he's over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Again, remember, these are mercenary groups. Many of them, we believe, are from, uh, from the Philistines. So these are foreign mercenaries that are very, very loyal to David more loyal than most other of his brothers. And so these men, they stick to David. They're like his secret service. There's nobody going to touch David without these guys, with these guys around. Okay, And so verse 24, Adoram was in charge of the revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the gyrite, was a chief minister under David. And um, and and notice that it tells us, and uh, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible, right at this verse here in verse twenty-six. You might want to go over to, or, or just write a note, Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter eight, uh, verses fifteen through eighteen, because back in that chapter earlier in the book. It gives uh, an account of David's administration at that time. And there's been some minor changes here. Instead of uh, one of them is uh, David's sons were his chief ministers at that time. Probably Adonijah was one of his chief, chief ministers because he's the only one right now that's alive in this, at this time. Adonijah is still alive. And he's going to be the one that's going to try and seize the throne um, and we'll see that when we get into uh, First Kings. But, um, but now, instead of having his son be the chief minister, he puts this other man, Ira, the gyrite, he's now the chief minister under David. So no longer, you see David figuring something out here. So instead of having his sons, or uh, a son or some others, be um, his chief minister, he starts to think about that. And he's like, you know what? I need to get my family out of this. Because <laughs> they're, they're dying. They're dropping like flies. So I'm going to put somebody else completely different. And I almost wonder if David's starting to think about this nepotism thing a little bit. He's, he's thinking about it, and he's thinking, you know, I'm just going to get my son out of there. I don't need any more uh, threats. 
Um, and perhaps that's what he was thinking. We really don't know. Perhaps he sensed something in Adonijah that wasn't good. And if he did, he would be right in thinking so. Because like I said, Adonijah would be the next after Absalom to seek to depose David from his throne. Isn't that interesting? A, a funny thing about being in power is that this kind of thing happens. When somebody's in power, there's always somebody who wants to take you off the, off the throne. That's just the, the way it is in the world. Let's see. Let's see how far we can get into chapter 21. Uh, chapter 21 is going to be an interesting chapter because so far we've been going kind of chronologically. But when we get to chapter 21, many believe that this, this whole chapter actually preceded chapter 9 in this book. And what happened in chapter 9, remember, was when uh, David, um, after King Saul and his sons were killed in battle, there, in fact, just go with me really quick to chapter 9, because I think you'll see um, that this chapter really has to go right before chapter 9. Um, and let's just look at the first few verses of 2 Samuel chapter 9, and uh, you'll see that this event, this chapter that we're going to look at now, chapter 21, we'll, we'll get as far as we can, and then we'll, we'll stop here shortly, but... Um, in chapter 9, it says now, and this is, we're going back now in time. Saul and his sons have been killed in battle. David is finally on the throne. He's brought the ark into Jerusalem. Things are starting to settle down. And then it says, now David said in chapter 9, is there still anyone who has left? Think of that. Is there anyone who's left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He says that because he doesn't think there is anybody left because after we look at this chapter, you're going to see where the other men of Saul's, Saul's other sons from his concubine, Rizpah, she had uh, seven uh, sons, or, or five sons, and, and, uh, uh, and another woman had, uh, we'll get to her name, she also had two other sons. But the bottom line is, is these men have been already killed at this point. In chapter 9. So many believe this chapter 21 actually precedes chapter 9. So maybe something to do sometime is to read chapter 21 and then go back and read chapter 9. And I think it'll make perfectly perfect sense to you because it says here, David said, Is there anyone who has left of the house of Saul that, it, that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Because remember, David and Jonathan made a covenant with one another and, and that David wouldn't harm his, his uh, family. And, and there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Remember, because David was a kind man. He wasn't a bloodthirsty man. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And the king says, Where is he? And so the king, you know, Ziba tells him, but he was the only one left because all the other sons had died. They'd been killed, and you'll see why they were killed. So before chapter 9 there, just put chapter 21, okay? Some of the chapters in the Bible, um, one thing you have to understand about First and Second Samuel specifically is over time it has suffered what they call corruption. 
in the original manuscripts. And so you remember earlier on as we talked about numbers, and sometimes they numbers uh, c- kind of get garbled a little bit, you know, whether it's 400 or, fi- uh, 400 or 40 or 50 or 500. You have to understand that in the Hebrew language, when there is just a slight mark over, over the word five, it can mean 50 or 500. And if that mark is absent in some of the documents of the manuscripts, it's easy to mistranslate numbers. But the good news for us is that numbers don't really translate to doctrine, right? They're just numbers. And so don't let that throw you because the original manuscripts were flawless, but over time, they have, um, when, when they've read them, and begin to transcribe, some of those things had been corrupted. And so the, 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 the important stuff we get, but sometimes the numbers, they can get a little shifty at times. And, and not every chapter in, in, uh, in the books of the Bible are strictly chronological. And this is a good case in point. So this chapter really belongs right before chapter 9. Does everybody follow on that? So I think if you read it, it'll make sense. So read chapter 21 and then go back tonight and read chapter 9 and it'll, it'll make a lot more sense. So let's just go ahead and get into it a little bit here for another five or about 10 or 15 more minutes. So um, notice it says, so David avenges the Gibeonites and it says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David, notice, he inquired of the Lord. And so there was this famine. So sometime after David came into his kingdom, there was a famine. And I think you'll understand why there was a famine and why then. Why after he got into his kingdom? Well, God's going to tell us why there was a famine. Because of an oath that Saul had broken. And we'll look at that. I'm hope We'll at least start it tonight and we'll finish this next week. But God is serious about oaths. When we make an oath, we better follow it. And, and certainly it is a sin that God can forgive, but it's better not to make an oath or a promise at all than to make a promise or an oath and not come through with it, right? And so notice there in verse 1, underline this, David inquired of the Lord. This is a good moment for David because there were moments in his life where he wasn't inquiring of the Lord. Rather, he was responding to circumstances. Have you ever understood that? And you and I are a lot like that. And I want to encourage you to be careful in your life with these kinds of things. And you all, we have all experienced this, where we will be in a circumstance and we, will have to, we, we feel like we have to make a decision right now. If we don't do it right now, it's gonna, the, the, the possibility is gone. I'll never get it again. But one thing we have to understand that if it really was God's will for you, whatever it is, God is going to bring that around again or give it to you in a different way. The devil loves to get us to operate on the do it now, do it now. This is it. This is, this is the only opportunity. And people who are trying to get your money and get into your pocketbooks, they love to use that tactic. They love to say, you know what, this car is going on sale. You know, it's, uh, it's December 31st, and at midnight, it's, tw- it's 11.40 right now, p.m. you got 20 minutes to make this decision. But after today, sorry, this deal is off. We're going to give you $40,000. we are going to give you, you $15,000 off the price tag right now. If you sign on the dotted line, but at, at midnight, it's going to go back to full price. And you're thinking, i got to do it now. i got to do it now. And the next thing you know, you're calling your friends and family. Hey, man, do you got any money you can lend me? And, you know, you're freaking out. Be careful in stuff like that. You've got time. There are some things that you don't have time with. 
If you're standing on a railroad track and a train is coming at you, it's a good idea to get off the track. You don't have time then. But there are other circumstances in life where you feel like you've got to react quickly. Be very careful when you feel like you have to react quickly. Give it some time. Give it some time. Stop and get away from it and let your mind get back because that's where the devil, he loves to get us into those places. And God will see to it that we get into situations like that and we are really tested, aren't we? Because like David, he's, you know, or I'm sorry, um, uh, David had uh, been like that where he would respond to circumstances and not really uh, think about it. He wouldn't even inquire of the Lord. <laughs> There's many opportunities, many a- examples in, the, in, in what we've been reading where he doesn't do that. He just, you know, he doesn't inquire of the Lord. But here, thank God, he's got his bearings again, and then he inquires of the Lord. That's a really good thing for you and I to think about, too, to inquire of the Lord often in every situation in your life, in every detail of your life. Are you making a big purchase? Have you prayed about it? Or is it just something, well, I've done it before. I bought a car, and I know how to do this. You know, I go and I go to the bank, and I get a mortgage or whatever. I get a, a car loan. And, I mean, have you ever stopped and prayed and just said, Lord, is this the car for me? If it is, can you give me, you know, help me to stop and, and think about this? Things like that have happened in my life. I've been racing to, to do something, feeling like I, I've got to make a decision about something. I remember one time um, my uncle had passed away. And uh, I was early in the ministry uh, here. Um, and he had passed away. And we didn't have any money to fly out to see him. He was one of my uncles that I was closer to. And I knew it would cost quite a bit of money to not only for the airline tickets or whatever, but to rent a car when we got to the place where he was. And I'd probably be there for a few days because he was at the end of, end of life, and it was only a matter of hours rather than days. But sometimes people hang on for two or three, four or five days. And so we really didn't have the money. And so I was just about ready to pull a trigger and just put all this money on our credit card. And the Lord just encouraged me to wait. And the more you wait, the higher the plane tickets go, right? And so I'm thinking, well, I feel like i got to do something, and I just felt the unction, I better wait. And wouldn't you know it, the very next day, someone, I don't know who it was, gave me an envelope with cash in it for like $1,100. And that covered the whole trip and then some. We, even, we, could even, we actually ate out and had a, you know, uh, and it was just an amazing thing how God provided. I was gonna about ready to do this thing, and I could have done it, and he would have said, well, you're going to, Pay a lot of interest on that. Why don't you just wait for me? Because I've got I'm, I'm doing something that you don't know anything about, Rob. So why don't you just chill out? <laughs> and so I chilled out, and guess what? He came through, and that's happened, and that's happened more than once. Not with the cash so much, but that'd be really cool. But anyway, um, so anyway, this particular incident uh, that is spoken here in chapter 21 is not really in the scripture. Okay, so it's mentioning that something that has happened here, that, and notice what it says. Now, there was a famine in the days of, of, of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him. So David prayed to God, and God gave him an answer. Go figure. Isn't that great when that happens, when you pray and God answers, and, and, and you get an answer quickly? And this is what happened. 
So David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, and he gave him the reason why there was been a famine in the land. And here it is. It's in verse 1. It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Now let me ask you something. Why would God, and here's one clue that this chapter belongs right before chapter 9. Why would God do this at the end of his reign? Because chapter 19 and chapter 20, we're getting toward the latter part of David's life when he starts getting older. And why would God do that then? Well, because he wouldn't. He would take care of business before when David was just coming into his kingdom, into his reign. God would deal with it then because it was Saul. The Bible, again, doesn't tell us anywhere else in the Scripture where this happened. But Saul killed a bunch of Gibeonites for some reason. We have no idea why. But in doing so, he broke a, a promise that Joshua and the children of Israel had given to the Gibeonite people. Back when Josh, and we'll stop after this. Back in Joshua chapter 9, if you recall, the Israelites came, they, they crossed over the Jordan, they came into the promised land, and remember, their first battle was Jericho, and then it was Ai. And then, as David, or I'm sorry, as, as Joshua and the men began to make their battle plans and spread out and conquer the land, which God had told them to do, one of the cities, it was a royal city, it was Gabeah, and the men there were uh, Canaanites. They were from the Ammonite. They were a, a flavor of Ammonite, basically. And God had told them to wipe them out. But when they get to the city and they surround the city, uh, the, the men, um, while they're there, are on, en route to you know, t wiping out the city, some men come and they deceive, and they say that they're from the men of Gabeah, but they, uh, and, and they, uh, I'm sorry, they say that they were foreigners coming in and, and then they, they made friends basically with Israel and Joshua and these men had said, had made a covenant with each other, a, a vow with each other that they would not hurt each other's people. And so Joshua didn't understand that it was the people that were, was in the Gabeah. Those men had feigned, had faked, like they were from some long-distant land, and they made this covenant with the children of Israel. And so in doing so, the children of Israel honored that covenant. They didn't attack the city, but instead they put them into slavery, basically, you know, by cutting wood and, and carrying pitchers of water, basically put them to work. But in doing so, their lives were spared. Okay? So that was a covenant that Israel had made with these people of Gibeon. So now, fast forward into, you know, several hundred years, that covenant still stands. But it says that Saul, at some point in his reign, before David became king, somewhere along the line, Saul had gotten an argument with the Gibeonites, and he killed a number of them. And thus he broke the covenant that God, or that they had made with God concerning this people group. And so God says, because of that, that's why we have, that's why you guys are having this three-year drought. And so basically what he's putting David in, he's putting him in this position of righting this wrong at the very beginning of his reign, at his beginning of his kingdom. David, there's been something that's happened that you need to fix. You need to bring this into, uh, uh, you need to bring this into the light. You need to deal with this issue right now with these people because 
Israel had made a promise, a covenant with these people. You got to deal with this. And so David does. He does. And, and, and it's unfortunate. Again, this is... Um, um, notice David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it's because of Saul and, the, and, the, and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Um, and again, this was a good thing that David did, but he doesn't really tell him what he should have done. <laughs> and, and instead of inquiring of the Lord further, and we'll end here because we'll see this next week. This is a nice little hook, isn't it? Um, next week we'll get into um, the men of Gabeah basically tell David, hey, this is what you can do. Look, we don't want any gold or silver. We don't want a bunch of people to die. We just want seven of, of, of Saul's sons, seven of them. We just want seven of them. We don't want a whole tribe. We just want seven guys of, of Saul's sons. That's all we want. And David was like, hmm, okay. But he doesn't inquire of the Lord concerning that. So he listened to the men of Gabeah when he could have listened to the Lord. Maybe the Lord had a different plan. Maybe the Lord, if he had inquired of the Lord again, the Lord would say, David, I know what these men are saying, but why don't you counter with this? But there, we'll never know what that was because David never inquired of the Lord. Instead, David gives these seven men over to the Gibeonites, and they hang them, and they hang them. And the only one that saved out of all those men of Saul was Mephibosheth. And that's why this chapter belongs prior to chapter 9, because Mephibosheth is the only one that's left of Saul's sons. Do you see that? It's pretty interesting. And so um, we're going to stop there because uh, that's a good stopping point. But, um, but it's, it's interesting, though, when you think about it, David inquiring of the Lord because... He did, and it was a good thing, but he could have continued. There's been a lot of things that David could have done even better. And, and I'm not going to sit here and be some kind of armchair quarterback and say, you should have done this, you should have done that. You know, because honestly, if we were in that position that he was in, many of us would have chosen perhaps to do wrong things. We would have just taken the, you know, inquired of the Lord, and he would have given us, you know, the, the reason. And then notice that, that God doesn't tell him, this is what I want you to do, because there's further inquiry, David. But you didn't listen to me. You didn't even ask. You, just, you take the inquiry or you take the response of these men. Instead of inquiring of me again, you listen to their demands and you follow through with them. How things would have been different if David would have went back to the Lord and said, Lord, that, I, I understand that that is why we're having the drought. So what are we going to do about that? How do you want to rectify this? At the beginning of my reign that you've given me, how am I going to do this now? What would you like me to do? And the Lord would have answered him. But notice, there's no mention of it. He just listened to the men of, of uh, he listened to the men of, of um, yes. <laughs> just my, my brain just shut off there for a minute. Yeah, he listened to them instead of listening to God. He didn't inquire of the Lord. That's a good opportunity. So the moral of the story here, folks, for all of us, is never stop inquiring of the Lord. Keep that relationship with him. Keep that prayer life, that dialogue with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ, every single day. 
listen. And you know, you don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to, if you're driving your car and you're by yourself, maybe turn off the radio. Maybe sometimes worship and, and have the stereo up loud and sing like a bird. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But maybe sometimes you just need to turn it off and keep your eyes open while you're driving on 490 and pray to God and just say, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for what happened at work today as you're on your way home. Lord, there's this relationship with somebody at work. I need to you know, help me with this, Lord, because you know in my heart I'm, I'm angry with them, a little bit jealous of them, and you know why I'm jealous, and I don't want to feel that way, Lord. I know that they can sense something's wrong, and Lord, help me with this. You know, and you start to have this dialogue wherever you're at, any time, any day, whether it's audible or inaudible. Do you realize that your prayers, you know, that there are certain denominations that say, well, you, when you pray, you have to do this. You have to be down on your knees. You have to be facing toward the east. You have to have your little prayer rug. You've got to be you got to make sure that your eyes are closed because if, you're, if you peek, God's not going to answer. No, Jesus, when he prayed, he looked up to heaven with his eyes open and, and he prayed to the Father. So that's just a church tradition when we close our eyes. But I would encourage you to do a lot more praying with your eyes open unless the room that you're in is distracting. Then I, like I have to close my eyes when I'm in a really busy room. And if I know that something's going to get my attention, I'll close my eyes. But sometimes I'm so tired, if I close my eyes flatline, you know, instead of my heart beating like this, you know, all of a sudden I close my eyes, boop, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? So inquire of the Lord often as much as possible. That's where the relationship is with God, and that's what enriches us, and that's where the relationship grows as we come to him. And don't be afraid. You don't have to be in any particular position. There are times that I love to get on my face on the ground in my office when nobody's here, and I'll pray flat on my stomach. Sometimes I'm praying in my, in my chair with my feet up on the desk, and, and sometimes I'm driving my car. It doesn't matter where you're at. Just do it. Have that relationship with him. You just do what he wants you to do, and you keep that communication open. It's really quite simple, actually. People write books about it, and there's really wonderful books. E.M. Bound has, has written a lot of great books on prayer. But, you know, just make sure that you're praying. Because I've said it before, and I'll, I'll say it 100,000 more times, Lord willing, pray, pray, pray. Let's be a praying people. Now more than ever, we need to be people of prayer. Come to our Tuesday night prayer meetings at 7 o'clock. We meet in the fellowship hall. Please come out. You can come and go as you please. You don't have to stay for the whole hour. And we, we usually pray for about an hour. But come out and pray with us. And if you're not praying with us physically, you know, dial in. We send out this thing, you know, for um, if, if you want to be on that uh, distribution list. Most of you are already on it already. But if you want to be able to dial in and, and, and pray that way through the, the computer and you can hear other people and they can hear you, you know, do that. But um, we'd love to have you come, though. There's plenty of room we can spread out. It's a really great time of fellowship. So anyway, why don't we stand together and let's inquire of the Lord, <laughs> like David. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. And, and Lord, help us to be those kind of people, Lord. And help us to learn the, a great lesson from David, Lord, that we wouldn't inquire of you here and there and make other decisions in our flesh, you know, here and there, but Lord, help us to be people that inquire of you all the time. And so, Lord, help us to do that. And just bless my brothers and sisters, Lord. I, I, I know that they've come from different places tonight, and um, 
Lord, with all the, the stuff going on with the virus, Lord, I pray that you would not allow us to live in fear any longer, God, but that we would take care of each other and that we would listen and that we would love each other, God, and uh, that we never cease to come together like this, Lord, uh, maskless or ma- with masks, Lord, whatever it may be, just have your way with us. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.